Welcome to Spectrum, the show that discusses news and topics that affect Southern Nevada and the surrounding communities. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Welcome to the program. I've got two guests on the show today. Later, fundraising titan Linda Smith joins me to talk about her new book and her incredible journey. But first, it's part two of my discussion with Las Vegas Review Journal business columnist Rick Vallada. This morning, we're getting the latest info on the new football stadium. Review Journal business columnist Rick Vallada joins me. You recently attended a Las Vegas Stadium Authority meeting, and there has been quite a bit of noise on social media, at least, about that rumor surrounding the completion date, which had been moved from July 31st, 2020 to August 4th, 2020. Where did that come from, and, and where are we right now? You know, you, you described it precisely, Jim. It's a rumor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of those uh, rumors of the of the of the best kind being it was an untrue rumor, and where where this first came from is uh, somewhat baffling and and uh, kind of wrapped in some mystery because the Raiders all along their their uh, subsidiary that's actually building the stadium they've said all along that they have not wavered from July 31st as the completion date, so. Uh, when one of their monitors, just to back backtrack just a little bit here, both the convent, or excuse me, both the stadium authority as well as the Raiders have their own independent monitors that are watching every step of the way to make sure that they what they're reporting to the public is legitimate and it's true. So uh, one of these monitors had a report that was not reviewed by the Raiders. Uh, prior to the uh, meeting that uh, occurred last Thursday. And uh, what, what, they, what they basically said was, uh, we've determined that the uh, stadium is going to be delivered uh, five days later than what they originally said on August 4th, as opposed to July 31st. And the uh, chief operating officer for the stadium company said, what? I... Uh, that's news to me. I've never heard of that. <laughs> so they finally kind of came to the conclusion that somebody took a look at a, a graphic rendering of this schedule and somehow made a determination that the uh, final completion date was going to be uh, August 4th instead of July 31st. Well, uh, the, uh, the COO, his name is Don Webb, said over and over again, this is not true. This is, you know, we, we don't know where this came from. But, in fact, the uh, stadium will be delivered on July 31st, as, uh, as we have said all along. So, you know, when I, when I first reported, I saw the report, and I put it out the, uh, the same way. And, of course, uh, social media picks this up very quickly, and the headlines start to hit about stadium delayed. E- even five days is not that big of a, well, in terms of a schedule, you know, more than uh, uh, 200 days long. So... It, it, it's not. It, it, it didn't seem like it was a, a big deal to me at the time, and I think it's even less a deal now. Now that we know that uh, it's not true, I for one can't afford season tickets, let alone the personal seat license. But sales have actually exceeded expectations, haven't they? They have, and uh, part of that is uh, because I think that the, uh, the the same effect that is embracing the uh, Vegas Golden Knights has also embraced the the Raiders. And, you know, I think we can all agree that football is probably a lot more popular than hockey at this point. And, and even though our homegrown team of, uh, of the Golden Knights are beloved by uh, Las Vegas residents, uh, have a lot of support, uh, 
just the fact that this is we're talking about NFL football, uh, that is the big sales pitch as far as this. It's the National Football League. It's big time. We're one of uh, 32 places in the country where they have uh, games played. So this this is a big deal, and I think a lot of people wanted to become a part of it, despite the fact that the price tag uh, is out of range for a number of people, yourself, myself, uh, a number of my friends included. Transportation to and from the stadium continues to be a concern, even with that uh, satellite parking idea that we've talked about before. And the monorail situation doesn't appear to be happening. Yeah, it's, um, you know, financing uh, that type of an expansion is, uh, we, we knew all along it was going to be a challenge. We just didn't realize how big of a challenge it was going to be. And apparently, it's more so of a challenge than anybody uh, recognized because there's been no movement at all in terms of expanding that route and extending the uh, the monorail out to Mandalay Bay, which is what the, the, the plans that are in place would have it do. That, that's disappointing. I think mass transit's uh, really going to be important to the success of the of the stadium and of the Raiders. And right now, that's one less option that we have to, to look forward to and thus puts a lot more pressure on the parking model that uh, has been established and we'll kind of have to wait and see all the details of that because the Raiders have basically outlined what their plan is but have not really spoken on many details of what uh, what they have in mind. Don Webb has said that he expects an estimated 20,000 people will walk to events at the stadium from the resort area, specifically Hacienda Avenue. That's about 0.7 miles, I believe. That's not too bad. You know, considering that the stadium uh, will, will hold 65,000, you can kind of do the math and figure that there's going to be yeah. a lot more people who will need to drive in than to to walk in and you know and that that 20,000 also presupposes that the uh, the weather is going to be conducive I, I know that some of those early season games in the, the preseason for sure in August and the early season games like in in September maybe even into early October it's not exactly ideal to be walking around out on that concrete uh, when it's uh, 100 plus degrees outside so it's it's not it's not uh, you know thoroughly uh, uh, vetted in terms of just exactly how practical this is. Um, and, and then as, as I pointed out, or as you pointed out, the, uh, the satellite parking plan is not fully vetted and it's not uh, something that I think a lot of people know a whole lot of uh, details about. Something else to consider, I think, and that is there sure better not be an event going on at the T-Mobile at the same time, don't you think? Absolutely. I think there's going to have to be some coordination between uh, leagues because if you have a Golden Knights game going at the same time as a, um, uh, a football game, and, and you know, it, during this season, that's what the Golden Knights season starts in late October, early November. So there's a, a large crossover there of events. Plus the fact that T-Mobile Arena has a number of concerts scheduled throughout, you know, during the uh, during the year. So it would probably be wise to try to keep the kickoff times away from the same times as events going on at T-Mobile. That may not always be possible, but in the event that that does occur, boy, I I don't want to be anywhere close to I-15 when that happens. In a recent 
column, you talked about how the developers have a new digital tool. It sounds amazing, too, that will record every pipe conduit and, and lights and all that stuff for posterity when things need to be fixed and they'll know exactly where things are. It's amazing, isn't it? It is absolutely astonishing. I, when uh, And, and the, the way that they've done this is that they've... Uh, they they fly a drone on a on a pretty regular basis on a pre-programmed flight path that uh, basically goes around the entire stadium and then kind of peers into to, to different locations. Then what they've done is they've taken that that footage and overlaid it onto some of the plans, and that produces a 3D rendering of every single square inch of that stadium. You can uh, kind of um, uh, walk through passageways and you can walk. Uh, into um, uh, suites, and you can walk into uh, rows of, of uh, seats. Any, any place that you would possibly need to go within the stadium, you can actually see uh, as, a, as a digital representation on these uh, programs that have been developed by uh, McCarthy Builders, one of their, their top uh, uh, construction managers, a guy named Joel Jacobson, has done just a fantastic job of being able to put this together. And it's kind of a first for... Um, for stadium development of, of this kind, um, and I've been assured that uh, that that type of technology is being con- considered in other aspects of the stadium. So we're going to see some really interesting things that we've probably never seen before in any other stadium venue coming out of this. Uh, just because they want uh, they want first class and they want it to be something that will improve the experience of the people who go to the games. So we'll, we'll see some pretty incredible things, and I'm excited to report them as they as the information is released. Rick, it's always great to catch up with you. We'll have to do it a lot sooner than later. I know that it almost seems like every day or every other day you've got something else that surprises me. Yours is a must-read column in the Review Journal. I appreciate your time. Well, I, I appreciate your, your kind words, and uh, this is a great news town. This is fantastic. It, it gives an opportunity for somebody like me and uh, uh, the ability to to write about a really exciting place, and that's our home. Yeah, I go to your column before I go to the comics, and that's saying a lot. Rick Falata from the Review Journal. We do appreciate it. Keep up the good work, and thank you. Thank you. My next guest is fundraising icon and disabilities advocate Linda Smith, who has helped raise a half billion dollars for Opportunity Village and other charities. Her life now the subject of a brand new memoir. Linda, welcome to the program and congratulations on your memoir, Unwanted. It it must be a, a great feeling to have all of this down on paper. It sure is. It's not anything that I ever imagined I would be able to do, but it's so it's so interesting what life has in store for you. And uh, I just started writing, and you know, you get that first sentence, and and you get that first paragraph, and then there's a page, and then all of a sudden you're a writer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's an honor for me to speak with you. I know all of the things that you've done, especially here in Las Vegas. And your story really reads like a movie. And I should say that has it been pitched to any of the studios at this point? You know, thank you for asking me that. Uh, it's actually quite exciting. It has been pitched and CAA has shown interest. 
Um, Andre Agassi's manager um, has shopped it. And then just a couple of weeks ago, I heard interest from Charlize Theron's group. And so I have this wonderful young screenwriter with Black Raven Productions. You know, he's out there talking to a lot of people and there's quite a bit of interest. So that's exciting. It's not anything either that I thought would happen. And, you know, these things are such a long shot. It's the same with writing um, a book. You know, you... Uh, my my intention was to just get it on, on paper and then people start talking about, gee, it could be a bestseller and it's not anything I ever imagined. Same with the movie. I never imagined a movie and what the heck, now there seems to be interest. So we'll see how that goes. You know, it's interesting because a life like yours, and I've, I've spoken to several authors over the years, and some of those who, who have these full lives and big stories, I think after they have it all down on paper, it's almost hard to believe that it's your life, isn't it? You know, you're, you're, you're so right about that. And we all have these stories to tell, um, all of us. And I mean, every time I talk to somebody, their story seems much more interesting than mine. But when I tell the story, people are astounded. And, and then I get to, you know, see from someone else's perspective that, yeah, it really is a different story and one that needs to be told. I know what a fundraising giant you are in this town, uh, but I had no idea until I started looking into the book about all of the things that you went through just to get to Las Vegas. If, if you wouldn't mind, could we look back on your journey and where you were born and how it all started for you? Well, sure. And and I'll try to keep it brief so I don't bore everybody. But the, the quick snapshot is I was, I was born in England and into an abuse of family. My father was a bad guy. And we escaped to Canada, our family did. And then he came looking for us and found us eventually. I was about 11 years old at the time. He eventually was deported um, because he came with a gun to kill us all. And uh, so in Canada, you, you don't walk around with a gun. And he was deported. And at age 11, that's the last time I saw him. And then for a while, we were homeless. We were living with friends. And then Salvation Army helped us out, and so I've experienced that. And uh, but I didn't want to be that that sad kid, and I eventually taught myself to dance and became a, a dancer, and eventually became a lead dancer on a television show. And things were really great for me. I was an actress and a model and a dancer, and I married a guy who was the Canadian Entertainer of the Year, and he happened to live in Las Vegas, so he'd been appearing here and all over the world. So I married Glenn Glenn Smith, and moved to Las Vegas. And then three years later, we decided it was, you know, we had our home here in Vegas. It was time to plan a family. And I got pregnant. And then through uh, celebrity friends, particularly Wayne Newton, who's been a, a longtime family friend, he secured a seat for me on a plane, you know, industry flights. There was a flight going from Las Vegas to Toronto, and I was eight months pregnant. But on the due date, my uh, so Glenn, my husband at the time, was going to be appearing in Toronto. So I jumped on a plane and midway to Toronto, I went into labor. But the funny thing is, it turned out that there were 75 doctors on the plane because it was a medical junket. So, oh. <laughs> so anyway, I was in good hands, but the plane landed and my son Christopher was born in Canada. And that, and he was born with Down syndrome. 
in Canada. That set us on an odyssey of this whole different world living with a disabled child, but also realizing that the discrimination that existed in terms of, particularly in terms of immigration. So we could not get Chris into the United States, not because he was born in Canada, but because he was born with Down syndrome in Canada. It was unbelievable. We had celebrity friends. We had Senator Reid, Senator Bryan at the time, Johnny Carson, uh, just a lot of people trying to help us. And eventually, Senator Hubert Humphrey, Vice President, I should say, Hubert Humphrey, became Chris's sponsor. Up until Chris was eight years old, we had a sponsor for Chris. He was in the country. But when Hubert Humphrey died, we lost our sponsor, and we were told to get Chris out of the country. And I had, you know, when Chris was born... And once we got him legal with a sponsor in the United States, I started volunteering and helping Special Olympics and and, uh, Opportunity Village. I started being learning seat-of-the-pants fundraising and became a really good fundraiser and, and started building these buildings. But they were buildings that my Christopher would never be able to get into unless he was legal. In, in the country. Once Hubert Humphrey died, I was harboring an illegal alien in my home, which was my own son, and continued to do so while I was building Opportunity Village. By a fluke of fate, two months shy of Chris's 18th birthday, uh, I happened to be at a conference in Washington, D.C., and there was a seat in the room at a dinner of 1,800 people in the room and just happened to sit down at that seat, sharing stories across the table, and somebody recognized me and said, oh, you're the speaker tomorrow. And whatever happened with your son, did you get him legal? And I shouted across the table, I've been harboring an illegal alien in my home for 18 years. And the guy sitting next to me said, what did you say? And so I quickly, he was a stranger to me, quickly told him. And he was the head of immigration for the United States. Oh, wow. And he was at that disability conference because he had married a woman uh, who had a disabled child and he got involved with disability. So that's kind of the nutshell of the story. I mean, there's a, a lot more to it. But but really, uh, a chance meeting that he would be sitting there right next to you. Um, unbelievable. 1,800 people in the room. And, and when I had walked in that room, there wasn't a seat in the room. And I turned around to go because I really didn't want to be there anyway. I'd just flown in from Las Vegas. It was I wanted to get to my hotel room. I was a speaker the next day, but somebody waved and said, there's a seat over here. If not for a matter of just a few hours, when in terms of when that original flight took place, if Christopher had been born here in the United States, would you not have had any of these problems? No, no. He would be uh, born an American. Now, if I wanted him to immigrate to Canada, which I wouldn't have because Las Vegas was our home, I would have had the same the problem just going in the other direction. And the interesting thing is the laws that were written as they were written, the United States said people exempt from entering the United States are permanent re- as permanent residents are number one criminals, number two retarded people. That was the language. Canada said people exempt from entering Canada as permanent residents are number one morons, imbeciles, and idiots and their families. Number two, criminals. Those were the laws. This is not the dark ages that existed when my my kiddo was born. So I would never know. Most people wouldn't have a reason to to know those stories. And, you know, two summers ago, I was visiting uh, relatives in 
in Canada and coming back at the airport, I picked up the newspaper and there was a story, the second page in, about a family who wanted to immigrate to Canada from South America who were both, they were professors, they had both been working on visas for something like six years and wanted to move to Canada, but they, and they had three children, one with Down syndrome. They could come in, they could, two healthy children could come in, but not the Down syndrome kiddo. So the laws have changed the language and the laws have changed, but they're still exclusionary people. And these are the best people in the whole world. Yeah. Somebody, my, my Chris would never start a war or, you know, hold a grudge or he's a teacher of men. Uh, These kids have such tremendous value. They teach us all daily lessons, you know, in, in kindness and, uh, you know, they're non-judgmental, they're positive people, generally. I always say I wouldn't trade my, my kid for, for any any kid in the whole world. He's just a wonderful, wonderful human being. I know that he really changed your life in many ways in terms of treating people differently, I suppose, because, you know, a lot of people would just turn the other way when they see somebody with a disability. and Oh, and, you know, and I, I face that kind of discrimination. And, and that happens today, not just to me, to, to everyone, people. And I, and I see parents pull their child away from someone who looks a little different or acts a little different. And, and instead of, there's a teaching moment there of how, you know, how to treat people. And so, sadly, I think there's much more awareness and much more, you know, the public perception has gotten a lot better, but there's still a lot to be done. Sadly, children, you know, when my Chris was born, I was told to put him in an institution and forget about him. He was going to ruin my life. And I talked to young parents, and that's still being said. So... We've got a lot of work to do. That's why it's so incredible, the things that you have done over the years, especially for Opportunity Village. Well, and that's just, that's a remarkable organization. And, and, you know, a lot of people think that I am the founder, but I'm not. There's seven families that got together and started Opportunity Village. But when I got to town 38 years ago, it was a small struggling organization. And so I was able to make my mark there and lend my hand. And it helped that we were entertainers and we brought a lot of attention to it. But it was wonderful from day one. And it remains an amazing organization. And I'm very proud of everything that that organization actually taught me taught me to be a fundraiser to create events like the Magical Forest and the Great Santa Run and those are fun things for me and I'm very proud of of all of them but none of that would be the case were it not for my son Christopher and you've raised it's a staggering amount I think someone said something like a half billion dollars over the years yeah I'm actually working my way towards a billion so you know a half a billion here at Las in Las Vegas uh, but I've also over the years helped many organizations around the world so Opportunity Village allowed me that opportunity to help other organizations, but since leaving Opportunity Village, now I am able to really dig in and, and help other organizations raise the bar and uh, and raise money. So kind of got I got my eye on that billion dollars. <laughs> yes, and uh, good for you. You so that is that was your reason for leaving, so that you could kind of branch out and help other organizations. Well, you know, I had. I did more than I ever thought that I, I actually, honestly, I was just going to die at my desk. I, I, I was going to stay there forever and ever. Well, as organizations change, different leadership come, comes in and I, you know, maybe it is time. Let, let that next generation, they may have different visions. And so I, I kind of left there 
not 100% sure what I wanted to do, but I just knew it was time for me to leave. I had raised the money for well into the future for them so that they could do residential and build more buildings. And uh, and I was always asked by other organizations to help them. And the timing was just, it was just right. I kind of moved on and I'm just having a blast making a difference in not just here in Las Vegas, but communities around the world. I actually have a client in Liverpool and one in Belfast and uh, one in Texas and one in San Diego. And so fun. All disability groups. Linda Smith is with me. And I think, Linda, people who don't live here, they don't get how the Las Vegas community, especially the entertainment side, are so giving, aren't they? This is one of the greatest communities. I often feel like maybe I should have worked for the Chamber of Commerce because yes. it is such a giving at every level, you know, and, and not just corporations, because a lot of people think it's, oh, it's these big, you know, corporations with lots of money, they're the ones that prop all the charities up. It's not really, it's, it's, it's the next door neighbor, it's the average Joe, it's the, it's the people who have been successful. It's just, it's a, a melting pot of wonderfulness here. And I, I think too, because everybody is sort of this renegade spirit in, in Las Vegas, and everybody sort of had to pull their bootstraps up and get it done. And I think there's an appreciation for, you know, that just, let's make this a, a better community and the way you make it a better community is that you support the, the charities and there's amazing charities in this town. Right now I'm helping bighorn sheep on the mountains survive. I'm helping um, the Ruvo Brain Center and uh, a place called Henry's Place, a little camp for at-risk children and the support that they all get from this community is amazing. And so I'm constantly telling people outside of Las Vegas that it's not just the Las Vegas Strip. There are real people who care about their community and every segment of it from, you know, from the guy that provides the porta potty for the Santa Run to, you know, heads of corporations and individuals with considerable wealth. It's a, a very giving community and celebrity. Wow. Celine Dion, I mean, the first time I asked, she said yes. Um, I mean, so it hits your wagon to that star. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she came into town, and I, I, I got to make the presentation to Celine and Renee, and they got it right away. They're coming here. They need to be part of this community. And so you're seeing it now with, you know, with I'm sure, the Raiders and, and hockey teams. Yeah, the Golden Knights, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Your book, Unwanted, is it still on pre-order at this point, or, or can we pick it up anywhere now? It, it can be purchased. Uh, yes. Yeah, on Amazon, and Barnes & Noble, yeah. on my site. Yes, it's, it's available, and it's a fun read. A job well done. We appreciate everything that you've done in this town, certainly, over the years. And best of luck to you and uh, Christopher. I know Christopher is going through a bit of a struggle right now. We wish you all the best of luck in the future, Linda. I so very much appreciate you, opportunity, and your kind words. And I love your show. And so uh, thank you. And check on me again. Maybe there'll be a movie. We'll do that. And then maybe I can interview you and Charlize Theron together. There you go. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Linda. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Once again, Linda Smith's incredible book, Unwanted, is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and iBook, as well as her website, lindaslife.com. I'd also like to thank my earlier guest, Review Journal columnist Rick Vallada. And thank you for joining me this morning. I do hope to see you back here next Sunday at 730. 
Spectrum is hosted, written, and produced by Jim Tofty. If you have suggestions on future guests or topics, please send them to spectrum at smiradio.com. 